Thank you very much for coming. So good evening. I am, as you probably all know, Milena Kalinowska, Director of Public Programs and Education here at the Hirschhorn Museum. I am thrilled to welcome you to the first public programs of 2015, a very special media artist presentation with Spencer Finch. Spencer Finch is known for amazing work that often recreates natural phenomena through artificial constructions. His installation of cloud H2O, currently on view at the Hub of Things, New Views of the Collection, curated marvelously by Evelyn Hankins and Melissa Ha, mimics the molecular structure of water through an arrangement of suspended light bulbs. The sculpture is a glowing representation of water vapor. Now I also would like to thank Hirschhorn staff, Alex Bendixson and Kevin Hull for their help with tonight's lecture. And now let's turn to what you all want to hear, a very special guest. Spencer Finch was born in New Haven, Connecticut, and currently lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. He studied at the Rhode Island School of Design, Hamilton College, and Doshisha University in Kyoto, Japan. Finch works in a variety of media, including painting, photography, sculpture, and installation, often reconstructing the experience of light and color using scientific methodology. Finch's work raises questions about perception, memory, experience, and time. Susan Cross has said about his process that contrary to what might, one might expect, Finch's efforts towards accuracy resist, in the end, a definite result or single empirical truth about his subject. Instead, he docked method reinforces the fleeting temporal nature of the observed world. Like the ancient participants of the hermit's art who saw change as the most fundamental truth of the universe, the artist doesn't always provide an answer in his investigation. For Finch, art can be more, and it can ignite our capacity for wonder. The sense of wonder is something I have seen on many faces at the Hirschhorn as they come upon his work, as they take escalator to the third floor. I believe many of you have done that, and if not, I'm sure you will when you come next time. Finch has exhibited internationally since the early 1990s. He has completed recent projects at Marfa Contemporary, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, Fragbas Normandie, and the Monteclair Art Museum. Finch was included in the 2009 Venice Biennale, Making Worlds, and in the 2004 Whitney Biennale. Recent public projects include trying to remember the color of the sky on that September morning of 9-11, museum in New York City. Vital signs for quadrant three in London. The glass facade designed for the John Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore, and the river that flows both ways for the High Line in New York City. 
His work is held in numerous museum collections around the world, and I'll name just very few, in the Art Gallery of New South Wales, Sydney, the Glasgow Museum of Art in Glasgow, the Solomon Guggenheim Museum in New York, the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Museum for Modern Kunst Frankfurt, and the Whitney Museum in New York, as well as here at the Hirschhorn Museum. Now, I'd like to ask you to welcome Spencer Finch. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Milena. Um, thank you also, Alex, for all of your work in organizing things. I'd also really like to thank Melissa Ho, the curator who um, pulled my dusty old sculpture out of storage and, and put it up after uh, several years. Um, and it was a real pleasure working with her. And um, it also was a real pleasure to see the reinstall of the um, permanent collection upstairs, which I think is um, really smart. It's really uh, beautifully done. And um, uh, just for an example, there's a room with a, a Bryce Marden and a Jan Dibbets and a Richard Long and a Sui Kuo-Chang, um, this sort of gray room. And um, like uh, Bryce Marden is sort of a guilty pleasure for me. And Jan Dibbets is someone who I've admired. You know, I guess it's maybe like a head and a heart thing or something. But to see works like that together and to see these sort of connections and uh, work that I like for different reasons uh, connected. It's really um, great. Um, so uh, one um, thing that I've been sort of fixated about, which I should sort of get out of the way, is um, as getting, uh, giving more lectures as time goes by, uh, one, uh, I guess, sort of uh, odd pleasure of it is that new anxieties uh, crop up. And so uh, the anxieties I used to have when I was first giving lectures or as a student, um, which was more of a kind of uh, imposter's complex, I think, uh, which I still have, but it's been a little bit diminished. Um, and uh, so my latest fear is um, I, I saw the trailer for this movie, this Julianne Moore movie, Still Alice, about early onset Alzheimer's. <laughs> and I mean, I am not going to see the movie. And just seeing the trailer was enough to like send me into a spiral. <laughs> And, it, and there's a scene where she's giving a lecture. I think it's where she first realizes that she has this. And, and uh, a friend last night told me, in fact, she's like a doctor. Her specialty is like linguistics or memory in linguistics or something. And so my big fear is that I'm just going to draw a complete blank on something here. And, um, and this is going to be you know, the beginning of the end. Uh, I mean, I guess it always is the beginning of the end. But, uh, um, so if that happens, uh, just, uh, you know, chuckle. Um, I am uh, showing, just so you know, I have 72 slides, images. Um, I'll try to keep this to about 45 minutes um, and then have questions. I organize the images um, for this talk uh, loosely on my interest in science and how I work um, with a sort of um, nod to science, I guess, in, uh, or I have for, for the last, uh, you know, 
25 years. And um, it's, uh, it's a thread that, that goes through my work. Sometimes it's stronger, sometimes it's, it's less apparent. But it's, it's a sort of organizing principle for this. Uh, partially um, determined by the work that's here at the Hirshhorn, uh, the Cloud H2O piece, which is, uh, I guess, pseudo-scientific might be the term. Um, so I, I'm, it's in chronological order, and the uh, earliest piece is, this is 1993, I think. And I think that what I'm most interested in with science is really the form of science, the sort of idea of um, experimentation of scientific method, of, of, of seeing something, observing something, and also how that sort of scientific uh, observation is inevitably imbued with um, subjectivity, um, which is the sort of human and beautiful part of it. So I, this, this is the work I did at the Grand Canyon, and I went out there and I was um, in a real sort of anti-photographic uh, period and really felt like I was just so um, disgusted with this idea of photography having a claim to the truth and that I, wa I wanted to go somewhere that was very photographed and do something that was the most sort of unphotographic and most subjective. So what I did is I went to the Grand Canyon and did pictures of the Grand Canyon with my eyes closed. So I closed my eyes and then the sun shone through the capillaries of my eyelids and then I did these series of ink drawings on mutsu paper, on mulberry paper, which wicks very well, so it's perfect for this, um, of the uh, Grand Canyon at different times of day. So there you see it. it's not a great image, but so it was sort of also um, influenced by the serial works of Monet from the 1890s, who is, uh, it's a sort of a long story, but um, it's a uh, kind of Stockholm Syndrome relationship with, uh, with Monet, where I really, um, in graduate school, was like, he was the arch enemy, and then I kind of uh, fell in love with him. And um, so the sort of seriality of Monet, I felt in itself was a sort of anti-photographic uh, uh, idea, kind of a, a way of working, in that it, it, this idea of having to repeat, and repeat the attempt to see something clearly is uh, intrinsically counter to the idea of being able to capture the truth in a single image. Um, this is a, a work that I did, well, you can sort of tell by, I mean, not only this furniture, which is still my studio chair, which you can, I, I still love this picture, because the lining of the chair is like hanging out from underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> and this chair was actually shown in a, another piece that I did, it was at Sculpture Center, which when it was on the Upper East Side in the 90s, and I was there once, and these two sort of uh, mat matrons from the Upper East Side were like looking very closely at the sculpture, which was the chair and this big ear trumpet. And, um, they were talking very like intently about it, and so I sort of sidled up to them to hear what they were saying. They're saying that chair is so disgusting. <laughs> Who would ever sit in that? <laughs> so they weren't. I mean, I guess they were critics of a sort, but they, they weren't so interested in the art. Anyway, this piece is a. Um, it's called Blue Wave, and what I did is I had my brainwave recorded on on this sort of early biofeedback software looking at one minute, no, I'm sorry, one second of the wave from the Hawaii 5 
TV show from the 70s. So that wave, I looked at for one second, so that wave thing went into my brain, and then that was recorded using this, uh, these things that they stuck to my head, and then, so there was a one second wave that was then on the monitor, it was converted to a uh, video signal, and then that vig video signal was transmitted to outer space using a microwave uh, um, frequency that penetrates the ionosphere. So I got this great guy in um, Maine who's a square dance, he has two jobs, square dance caller and um, antenna designer. Um, <laughs> two really great jobs actually, and is a really wonderful person. And uh, so he designed an antenna, even though he said it's illegal, um, because I'm only doing it for a second, he would let me transmit my brainwave to the bluest star in the night sky, which is Regal, which is the left, uh, left boot of Orion. Um, and so it's traveling, this was I think from 1994, so it's been traveling for 21 years. And so it's 860 light years away, so that's like 839. So it's, it's getting there slowly, but surely. <laughs> and um, it, uh, well, it, I, I, to, to sort of recreate what I was thinking about with this, I think would take too long. But it, it's, um, it's a piece that I'm still really fond of because it's kind of an invisible artwork that is about color. And both of those things are something um, that uh, still interest me a lot. Here's a, um, I, I did this series of work uh, in 1997. Um, uh, this was, it was a great time, actually a very productive time. I was in Sweden um, for a while for a residency. And I think the greatest thing for artists is to have time on your hands. And I think as time goes by, as you get older, it's harder to have that. But I think, this, I think it's just the absolute most important thing. And I had time. and. You know, I was sort of the new person in town, but after about a month, everyone kind of is, you know, tired of you, so you're left alone. And I had just a lot of time alone. So uh, what did I do? I started poking myself in the eye and seeing these shapes that appeared. So, um, so this is a drawing of what I saw when I poked myself in the, I guess it's, the, no, it's the right eye. Um, uh, and this big shape comes in from the left and this small shape as they push harder comes in from the right. And so it's also connected to that anti-photographic idea because I wanted to do something that only I could see that no one could take a photograph of that was just my image. And, um, and I can still, you know, it's sort of nice. I can still do it and so I kind of know that I'm still me. So probably even, <laughs> this is probably what will happen when the full Alzheimer's kicks in. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be at the, I'll be at the like, place drooling and poking myself in the eye. And they won't unplug me because they'll say, no, he really knows what he's, he's still conscious. Anyway, <laughs> God. Um, anyway so it's, um, you can do it yourself at home after this. Huh? Here's a, um, I'm, I'm interested in vision and how vision uh, plays tricks on us and how vision um, is, is different and um, I, I'm interested in perceptual vision in particular and how we have good color perception in our periphery but we, um, we, we, don't have, uh, we don't have good sort of shape definition in the periphery. So I did these, this series of, um, drawings of butterflies based on this, um, this haiku poem that is, uh, um, 
uh, now, now I really can't remember. That's uh, the, the uh, falling flower returns to the branch, a butterfly is the translation. Um, and so it's this idea of the poet mistaking a falling flower for a butterfly. And I love those sort of, those sort of mistakes. And so I did this series of uh, different butterflies uh, painted from the periphery. So I could just sort of see the colors a little bit and not get the shapes. And, and watercolor really is the right medium for that. And, um, and then name them with, the, uh, with their um, Latin name. Um, and I did them all, different butterflies all around the periphery. There you can see the detail. Um, <clears throat> here's uh, a, another work from that time. Uh, those butterflies actually were later, so we're a little bit out of chronology here. This is a work called uh, Study for a Groovy Unnameable Color. I love in-between colors, or colors that slide, colors that can't be named, colors that, that sort of uh, avoid um, uh, categorization. And so with drawings like this, I'm interested in where yellow becomes green, and, and you know, which is the last yellow one, which is the last green one, and this sort of variations in color names in languages and cultures. I think it's just so sort of amazing and, and wonderful when it's something that seems so, um, you know, uh, scientific in a way, but there's so much variation in, in what we see and, 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 and how we see and how we name what we see. Um, so this was just sort of a, uh, I don't know, kind of a demonstration of that. This uh, is a um, work based, it's sort of an homage to Isaac Newton, um, who of course did work about color. Um, and it's called Composition in Red and Green. And what happens is that these apples that go up into the chute, and then there's a little motor that controls the gate on the end of the chute, and uh, an apple falls onto the AstroTurf carpet every five minutes. And each day, a whole new composition of 50 apples or so is created on the AstroTurf carpet. So it's sort of a paint, painting machine. Um, and then at the end of the day, the apples go back up into the chute, and they, and they come back the next day. Well, they get sort of tested because sometimes they get rotten. And, um, and then they go back up and it's, it's recreated the next day. <clears throat> and there is a, uh, there's one of the compositions uh, in red and green. Here's a series of um, drawings I did of, uh, I did it for, uh, I've done it for a few months over, over the course of several years, of uh, darkness. And so it's based on the calendar. And so it's nights when I'm in the studio, I do drawings of darkness. And it's a little bit like the, um, like the Grand Canyon with my eyes closed. So there's a, there's a, a intrinsic paradox in the way of working because you can't be observing and making at the same time. So just the way I couldn't be observing the inside of my eyelids and painting those, uh, what I saw at the same time, with the darkness I would have this like crazy process of, of looking at the dark wall, letting my eyes adjust, turning and then uh, trying to remember the color, turning the lights on, matching it in pastel, turning the lights off, letting my eyes adjust, and going back and forth until I could get it right each time. And, and each time, of course, for one reason or another, I would do different parts of the studio, and there's a little bit of ambient light coming in. The uh, the colors of the of the darkness would be um, would be different. Um, 
This is a, a series from uh, 2002 and three, where I uh, kept track of uh, the colors from my dreams. I, I again was trying to think about, well, what's the color that, that is only, what's the sort of purest color that, that I can experience? And if you think about this sort of whole perceptual apparatus is really sort of getting in the way of uh, your experience with color rather than allowing it, I, I thought, oh, well, the purest color is actually in my brain. And so uh, when I'm dreaming, that's really the purest color I experience. So I decided to keep track of my colors from my dreams. And so I did it for a little over two years. I kept track until I was basically driving myself crazy because I would wake up, you know, you sort of sleep and then, you know, this really nice color comes along and so you wake, I, I would wake myself up and then not be able to sleep. And I, I read subsequently that um, people who keep dream diaries, uh, you know, a lot of youngians do that, um, they, they just don't get good sleep. It's not a healthy thing to do. <laughs> um, so, so I suffered for my art, but only so long. Um, and uh, the form, it's, it seemed that like the, the proper form for this would be um, Rorschach blots. And so each of the colors that I mixed became a Rorschach blot. There was a, um, that's I think the ham in the backseat of the Mercedes. I can't really read that. Um, I had lots of uh, like limousine, lots of limousine dreams, which is funny now that I think about it. I'm reading um, Andy Warhol's diaries right now, which is fantastic and I recommend it. And it's like, he's just so amazing. But there's all this stuff in the 70s and 80s of, of limousines. They're always riding around in limousines. And, uh, but, and so I have dreams. I guess I have sort of Warhol aspirations, but I had lots of, uh, and also being chased by the Russian mob. There was a lot of that as well. <laughs> and there's one of, uh, uh, this I remember quite vividly, Bob Dylan like hanging off the side of a skyscraper like the Chrysler building with this beautiful purple vest on as he was, as he was singing. Oh. Here's a, um, this is uh, one of the more boring artworks I've made and I've made quite a number of those. Um, it's called uh, Study for Molecular Orbital Theory. I did a show in 2003 in Berlin, which was the 200th anniversary of the invention of the color Prussian blue. And so since I was doing a show on Prussia, I thought I should be doing a show about Prussian blue. And so this, both of these rooms are Prussian blue, but the uh, color Prussian blue, which is one of the colors that's cre that is, its creation is described by molecular orbital theory, is one of the rooms, the one on the left, is white light with light Prussian blue painted walls. The one on the right is white walls with Prussian blue filters on the lights, so it creates a blue light. So it's these two ways of creating this color, and it looks kind of like a diptych, but then when people are in there, there is a sort of difference, this sort of weird difference that at first you can't quite figure out what's going on. Um, Needless to say, I haven't been asked to exhibit this uh, piece since. <laughs> um, this is a work that I did in, um, at ArtPace in San Antonio in 2003. It's called Paris, Texas. And what it does uh, is it shifts the color of the light, of the sunlight outside, to the color uh, which is this incredibly hot Texas summer sun. I was there in June and July. 
um, to the color of Paris in the winter, which I had measured um, previously in that, that uh, previous winter uh, with a colorimeter, a color light meter. So it's accurate for about three hours in the afternoon, and what it does is it takes this very yellow light and shifts it to a blue light, and it has this it's kind of amazing uh, psychological effect I mean, of course, the inside interior was also air conditioned, <laughs> but um, it, it shifts this sort of this sort of sense of the the, the sort of temperature and the color temperature to um, to the uh, to the light of, of Paris. It's kind of uh, this idea of landscape really interests me, obviously, and a sort of unconventional idea of landscape. And I think this is a very uh, like a lot of my work, probably heavily influenced by Smithson's idea of site and on-site and the relationship between two places, this sort of uh, dialectic between two different locations and two different uh, landscapes, and how this can be both Texas and Paris at the same time. It's a sort of double exposure. Speaking of which, see, this is why it's great having, you can see the slide that's coming up. Uh, so these are these aren't double exposures. This is a this is a it's called um, after Kawabata and um, uh, 49 minutes. Uh, and what it is is it's a, a series of photographs taken out of a window in Vermont at seven minute intervals at at dusk. And what happens is the uh, window turns into a mirror um, because there's light on inside the room, and it's a sort of beautiful thing. And it's, um, I stole it from a scene in um, uh, Kawabata Snow Country, where uh, the train comes out of the tunnel up in the north, and it's, it's that time of day, and the protagonist sees this uh, eyeball floating in the, in the window of the, of the train car, and it's actually the woman sitting diagonally across from him. It's sort of a beautiful kind of phenomenon. Another one, detail. Uh, this is the work that's at the Hirshhorn. This is in its previous incarnation, which I would say is far inferior to its current incarnation. Um, and uh, it's called Cloud H2O, and it's um, based on the molecular structure, of course, of water with um, two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom in each molecule, and then there's this group of molecules uh, that combine together to create a cloud. And it's obviously a sort of play with scale and, um, and also the idea of, of actually seeing. I, I am sort of interested in this idea of being able to see things on a, on, on a subatomic level, like what does color look like? What does water look like? What does anything look like? You know, we, we really see things, first of all, in a very narrow uh, spectrum of the electromagnetic spectrum, but we also see things um, at, a, at a, a very sort of narrow scale in, in terms of, uh, you know, very small versus very big. We don't see things, I mean, unless we're looking through a, a microscope, we don't, we don't see things at the atomic level. And all kinds of interesting things, of course, happen at the atomic level that don't happen at the um, physical level. Um, there's a detail of that. And, and this, this connects to that in a way. Uh, this is called abecedary, and it's, um, uh, part of the text of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle transliterated through a system of colored hearing that Nabokov had. Um, in his autobiography, Speak Memory, he writes about um, colored hearing, which is a little bit like synesthesia, but not really, um, where he associated uh, a color with each letter in the alphabet. 
And so, for example, um, A would be a, 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 a kind of blue, B would be a sort of burnt sienna, C is a, um, a, a sort of cerulean. And uh, so I loved this system of his, and I didn't know what to do with it for a while. And so I mixed all the colors, and it's like you know a half-baked idea of which I have many. And um, I didn't know really where to go with it, and I, I knew that it needed some sort of text. And finally, the, the sort of necessary text came in the form of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, because it is about this idea of you know, this, this sort of relativity and this idea that when you look at something, you change it, which I think is such a beautiful thought. And so the form that I use, so these, these drops, which are you know, atomic in a way, and you know, like, like particles. Um, and, uh, and then, so basically what I did is I went through about 20 pages, the sort of crucial pages of the text, and transliterated it. So I counted every time A appeared, what time, what, how many times B appeared, each letter, and then, um, and then added them all up, divided it uh, evenly across this big expanse of 36 panels, and then uh, put the drops of ink on the, on the paper. And so if you had like, I don't know, like a million computers working for a million years uh, at a million miles per hour, they would somehow figure it out eventually and you get back to it. Um, this is a much simpler piece. This is a, um, a piece, a, a sort of homage to Goethe, who was, the, of course, the anti-Newtonian in terms of his color theory. And it's called The Most Beautiful Blue in the World. And, um, uh, Goethe describes the blue as, well, he, he's very clear in his instructions. He says, you know, take a pencil, put it on a piece of paper, light a candle at, uh, at, in the afternoon uh, in low light, and the color of that shadow will be the most beautiful blue in the world. It's just, and uh, you know, that's another one of these things you can do at home. It's really, it is a, a beautiful, it is a beautiful blue. Here's a piece uh, that is based on the uh, wind at Walden Pond. Um, and I, um, I have a kind of interest, well, more of an interest in Emily Dickinson than, than Thoreau, but I, I've also been done a, a bunch of stuff uh, chasing Thoreau around. And so I, I went to the site of his cabin and measured the wind um, using an anemometer and then precisely recreated that wind. Uh, so I measured it for uh, two hours, two minutes, and two seconds. Um, I mean, if I had been really a serious artist, I would have done it you know, for two years, two months, and two days. But uh, I didn't have that kind of time at my disposal, so I sort of reduced it. And still, anyone who, stand, who experiences this piece for two hours, two minutes, and two seconds is, in my mind, amazing. But it, it precisely recreates the direction and the speed of the wind that I measured at Walden Pond. So if you're standing at the center where that guy is, you have the exact same experience that I had when I was measuring the wind blowing off Walden Pond. Here's a, um, uh, this is such, so complicated to explain, so let me see how I'm gonna do this. Uh, well, it's a, picture, it's a picture of the sunset. I wanted to do a Western, and I wanted to do something about the sunset, so I went to Monument Valley, I, uh, where all of those great films were, uh, Western films were made, and I um, recorded the light at sunset changing in my motel room. There's one motel in Monument Valley where all the film crews stayed. And, um, 
and then I recreated that light changing on the wall using a nine channel video of edited stills from the searchers, the great John Ford uh, Western. So um, it was really a crazy thing. I mean, it took way too long and, uh, and really for kind of minimal effect. But it's something, I, I, I mean, I, I still love this piece. I'm really sort of proud of it. And it, um, so it starts, of course, very bright. All nine monitors are illuminated. There's a lot of light because that's the beginning. And then slowly they change. They, get, they are darker images. And, there are, um, and then they slowly drop off until the end. There's just a single monitor that's illuminated. And then it's uh, these very dark scenes on that single monitor, and then that's the end, and it's, and it's dark. So it's, it is, it's a picture of the sunset in an incredibly indirect way of this place using the film that was filmed in that place uh, projected from these monitors. Here's a, um, here's a piece that I did in, in uh, St. Louis that is um, also a sunset piece, and it's, uh, it was for a show that was about light because there was a big Dan Flavin show they were doing. And because I work a bit with fluorescent uh, lights, they wanted me to do, you know, this is sort of, you know, in the shadow of Dan Flavin, who's oddly uh, an artist I don't really admire so much. But, um, and, you know, I mean, no artist wants to, you know, really do that. It's like, who wants to, you know, do that? So. Uh, um, so I decided to do something else, which at first they balked at, but then warmed up to. So I decided, well, this will be about light. I'm going to do something about the sunset. And so what I did was I went out there and did these uh, watercolors of the sunset and then matched match the colors. And then, uh, there were, then I installed solar panels on top of the museum. So the piece was not only about the sun, but it was powered by the sun. And then um, they, I hooked up an ice cream machine that was solar powered and then created ice cream that was the color of the sunset. So the, the, I mean, it sounds really complicated, but really the only hard part was mixing the colors because the ice cream machine, uh, it, it takes the product and then it adds air. So it changes the density of it. So the tone changes. So it took me actually quite a long time to match the colors to get the colors right. And, um, Oh, sometimes I have a picture of people enjoying the ice cream, but then we gave out free ice cream for uh, several hours each day, and it was uh, it was pretty popular. And I'm <laughs> I, well. I mean, sometimes you have to pander as an artist, you know. It's like, <laughs> uh, and I actually did kind of pander because they really pushed me. I really was against sprinkles, you know. And then they said, "Well, the kids really want sprinkles." And I said, "Well, what do sprinkles have to do with the idea?" So I totally capitulated, and people were allowed to put sprinkles on their ice cream cone. <laughs> this is a work uh, that's kind of similar to the um, uh, Paris, Texas work. It was shown at Mass Mocha in 2007, and it uh, shifts sunlight to candlelight. So I had this idea of like taking the sun and reducing it to the light of a candle. And uh, so basically, just sort of cutting out most of the spectrum except the yellow-orange, which is the candlelight. And so it's like a very, very bright candle. Um, here's a series that I did. I was in um, New Zealand in 2008 and uh, went to um, 
the glaciers, which I just read in the paper, they're, they're like really, um, you cannot even walk on them anymore because they're receding so much, it's so sad. So I did, uh, I, I really had a great time at the glaciers. So I, I, I did a couple things where I actually matched the color, but then I did photographs, which I then used to make these drawings of glaciers using a glacial method, which involved uh, freezing uh, diluted ink and then putting the ice onto paper. You can sort of see them spread out there. Um, and layer after layer after layer, and then I would put the paper on an angle so the, um, so the uh, ice would melt and um, create the movement of the image. And then I, I would have, so I would do the washes, the sort of uh, ground with big ice cubes that were very um, diluted, and then uh, for the more sort of uh, dense areas, I had an ice crusher, and so I would put that and let it sit for a bit, and then uh, it would flow off. And then for this sort of all over area of, uh, of slight texture, I would smash it, so it would be like snow made out of the colored ice. Um, and, uh, and so it was really using the process of glaciation to create um, about pictures of glaciers. This is a, a series, I, uh, I, one of the things I like observing is things I can't see. Um, and I, for a while I had thermometers in the windows of my studio and so that I could see what the temperature was and I did this series of drawings of the temperature of the studio window. So, um, and then used a sort of false color technique for matching uh, the color uh, temperature to the area that was uh, that temperature. So you can see the different colors refer to different temperatures. And then I did them you know, in a Monet style as the temperature changed through the course of the day. So it's, of course, something invisible. It's like you think nothing's happening with this window, but actually it's doing a lot every day. It's heating up and it's cooling off and it's changing. And because the sun in my studio, this window faces south, is coming, of course, from the east in the morning, like most places. And it, uh, so it heats up the west side first, and then, it, uh, and then as it moves around, at the end of the day, it heats the, uh, the, the left side of the, um, the left side of the glass. There's an installation of them over the course of a day. Um, and this, is, this, in, this has nothing at all to do with science, this piece in the foreground, but um, it was something um, that I just really wanted to make. I was walking down the street, it was about this time of year uh, in Brooklyn, and um, there were, you know, it had snowed and piled up and it was dirty, and I looked down and there was this pile of snow uh, you know, disgusting. And then I looked up and the light had changed, so I had to wait to cross. And so then I looked down again and I realized it was not a lump of dirty snow, it was like, it was like a lump of concrete that someone had like thrown there, which was like the, uh, like the inside of a hole, like you know, that would hold a sign or something. So they'd like chopped off the sign and, th and uh, thrown this lump of concrete. And um, so I, I thought it was the funniest thing. I was just laughing out loud, you know. And so I, this thing that first I saw as a pile of dirty snow and then was a, a lump of concrete, um, I thought, oh, I want to make that. And so I, I, I learned how to sort of cast, how to make these forms, and then got the right material, this right sort of mix of hydrocal. And it took about three months, but I made a series of these, uh, of these lumps. And 
I mean, they, I'm not sure they work for anyone but me because I had this experience, but I was just really determined to make it. And, um, you know, sometimes dreams come true. And <laughs> I, I did it. And uh, these were shown in Berlin a couple years ago in uh, March. Uh, just when, you know, uh, winter, everyone in Berlin is hoping winter is ending. And my gallerist there was furious because he didn't know, first of all, he didn't know really what was going to be in the show and these lumps arrived. And then it's March and the last thing people in Berlin want to see is more like piles of dirty snow or lumps of concrete. And, and in addition, he had to pay for these lumps of concrete to ship over there. So I was, and, and uh, but I must say I'm quite, I, I'm quite, proud to report that he totally warmed up to them. And by the end of this whole exhibition, they were really his favorite works in the show. So sometimes, you know, the, the, the poor lump, you know, it's like a Cinderella story. <laughs> um, this is a work I did in Venice in 2009. It was um, based on uh, the 500th anniversary of Galileo's observations of the moon. I did this sort of, uh, I, I did uh, two pieces about the moon. This is a piece based on uh, the moonlight. So it shifted uh, sunlight to moonlight. And then I also did a, a work based on the chemical composition. It was a, a molecule piece, like is here at the, um, at the Hirshhorn, based on the chemical composition of moon dust measured in uh, Apollo 17. Here's a work um, called AG, uh, which of course is silver. Um, and I really, um, it's sort of the one-off thing that I really, I mean, I still really like it a lot. And basically what it is, is it's photographs of silver, uh, of, of uh, modern silver, you know, really sort of clo pretty close up. And then they're printed, um, using the silver uh, technique. So, so, the, so the photographic print uh, uh, is, uh, sort of embodies what it depicts, if that makes sense. So it sort of is what it says. And so there's a sort of tightness to it. And I mean, photographing the silver is sort of amazing because you know, it's so beautiful and there's this amazing reflection. And it's, of course, in black and white. Um, and, uh, and silver gelatin prints are pretty beautiful anyway. But you can't, I realized I took all these pictures and you know, you can't really take a bad picture. You know, you think you're like, oh, you're such an eye, you're picking the best ones. I mean, they're all just so, so beautiful. This is the way the silver reflects the light and goes from light to dark. Um, but uh, so anyway, that was a series based on, there's a, one of them. I mean, it's like amazing. And then you do see the little scratches in, the silver, which you know, sort of connects to the scratch and silver plates. This is a, a, a work that I did that's uh, about the uh, evaporation of uh, coffee. Um, so it's just a glass that's, that's uh, and each day I would make a drawing of the uh, of the level of the coffee in the glass, and then at the end of the uh, yeah, so. It, it starts out quite weak, and then as it gets further along, it gets quite dense. So it's a, a sort of calendar of evaporation. It's like watching paint dry. Um, here's a work based on the Garden of Eden. Um, you know, everyone's got at least one, one Garden of Eden work in them, I guess. Uh, and um, it's, it's uh, all these different colors. I found an index, a dictionary of colors. And um, 
so all of these, I took all the names from that. Well, what I did is I took all the colors from my paint box and then did, these, uh, did a grid horizontally, horizontally and vertically and then went to each point where the colors overlapped and matched the colors to one of these colored names in the, um, in the dictionary of color. And so it is this idea of the connection, which is probably not obvious to uh, the Garden of Eden, is this idea of naming, this sort of, this sort of uh, uh, first act of language, which I think is so great. I mean, it's naming is, you know, it's such a hard thing to do, and, and it's also so beautiful in a way. I remember Auden said that the hardest thing to do in language is to name a cat. And I think to name a color, you know, it's so ridiculous, but it's also, you know, kind of wonderful. Here's a piece I did in Folkestone in England um, uh, three years ago, and it was uh, based on observations of the English Channel. There was this wheel that you would spin, you would look through the aperture and match the color of the uh, sea to one of the 100 colors on the, on the wheel. And then there was a, um, uh, a person, so they, and then there, each one had a number, and uh, there was a person, uh, there's a great English term for this, I, don't, I have no idea what it means, but they're called an invigilator. Um, and they would come each day, the invigilator, who was a scary person to me, uh, and they would take the number, they would match it, and then they would go into town where there were these flagpoles, and they would hoist a flag the precise color of the sea that day. So the people who couldn't get, you know, all the way from town to the, or all, yeah, into, over to the shore, they would know what color the, uh, the, the sea was that day. And then the, one, the next flagpole is um, uh, the day before, the day before that, and the day before that. And usually these flags are used for like, you know, it's like uh, some sort of war memorial. So it's normally like the army, the marines, the, the air force or something. And so this is a little bit of a change of that. This is a piece that I did that I've never quite resolved. I've done it twice. And it's, ba it's uh, based on, I, I'm trying to recreate what bees see. There's this color called bee yellow, or I'm sorry, it's bee purple, which is a combination of ultraviolet and yellow, which bees see that we don't see. And there's this amazing doctor at the University of Berlin who is a specialist in insect vision who's like helping me try to recreate that color, that experience. And, uh, of course, like uh, bees have compound eyes, so they don't see rounded forms. They see these shapes, these sort of hexagonal shapes like that. And so this is sort of an attempt to make a picture of a flower as seen by a bee. And this was another version of it that I did. And I, I, I'm going to keep working on it till I get it right. But I, it's an idea that um, I really uh, like, but I don't like what I've done with it so far. Here's a work I did originally for the Art Institute of Chicago that is called Lunar. And what it is, it's based, of course, on the Lunar module. And now, you know, I never thought of it this way, but like people, when it was shown at the Art Institute, like these little kids uh, would like run up to it and like hug it, which has never happened to an artwork of mine before, if you can believe that. Um, and I realized that what they see is they see a big smiley face with outstretched arms. <laughs> and it was fantastic. But, um, that wasn't the intention. The idea is this idea of lunar, like basically a sculpture that behaves like the moon. The solar panels absorb uh, sunlight during the day, and then it emits light, the color of the moon, in that big buckyball at night. So it behaves just like the moon. And if it's cloudy and there's no sun, then there's no moon because the batteries don't get charged. Um, 
And this was when it was shown at uh, Storm King uh, Sculpture Park uh, two summers ago. There it is, back view. Here's a uh, work I did uh, about two years ago based on, uh, also on Walden Pond, which is, um, Thoreau did these soundings of the pond, and uh, which I thought was so beautiful, this idea of trying to understand something. And so what I did is I took a rowboat around Walden Pond and did soundings and also matched the color of the surface of the water. And um, this is a, a piece of, um, a couple hundred drawings that are each individual watercolors that indicate the location, and then the depth of that spot is um, is indicated on on the on the rope. So um, it was uh, it's kind of a three dimensional picture of Walden Pond over time. Also something that like was a big pain in the neck. Here's a, a work um, that is more of a sort of literal. Um, you know, I, I'm interested in data. It's something that's sort of dangerous to try to work with without it being just, you know, it's just sort of decorative because you can make uh, data look like anything. But this is a, um, a piece that's based on forecasts of the position of the jet stream 10 and a half days in advance, which, you know, is sort of hard to do. This is a work based on, um, well, it's kind of hard to describe. Uh, so there are the two boxes that each has a film in it, and the one on the right, it shifts the color of the light in the morning outside to the color of light in the afternoon, and the one in the left shifts the color of light in the afternoon to the color of light in the morning. Uh, if that makes sense. So if you stick your head on the, in the one on the left in the morning, you experience afternoon light. If you, yeah, that's how it goes. And then if you stick your head in the one on the right in the afternoon, you experience morning light. Um, and so you're looking at the landscape, you think it's always the same, but in fact, the light is always changing. And so it's a sort of time machine that shifts the light from morning light to afternoon light or afternoon light to morning light. And, um, and then, of course, you can sort of step back and see this sort of diptych. Um, here's a piece I did last year um, at uh, SFMOMA when they were doing a series of projects in, because um, they're closed for renovation, in uh, Los Altos, which is Silicon Valley. So I decided to do something that was really slow and, um, and that people would have to sit down and experience. And, uh, it's based on, it's called Back to Kansas, and it's based on The Wizard of Oz. So all of these colors are taken from The Wizard of Oz and uh, painted on the wall, aspect ratio the same as the film. And then people sit in the room and um, uh, at dusk as the sun is going down. And, um, and these people weren't volunteers. I think, you know, they were like parolees or something. They had to do this as community service. <laughs> no one actually did it. Uh, they said for 35, um, it took about 35 minutes for the light to disappear. And so it shifts from, you know, where you can see all the colors and then the, the colors that are, are short wavelength, the blues and the purples disappear first and then the reds disappear last. So over the course of 35 minutes, it turns totally gray, hence the title back to Kansas, where it goes back to black and white. And there's uh, an observer who was actually here tonight observing this. Um, this is a piece I did at Montclair uh, Museum uh, last year that's just called Yellow. 
it was their 100th anniversary, they wanted to spruce the place up, and so I was brought in. <laughs> Not really, but I mean, I don't know why I said that. But they wanted, there were these, you know, it was like, you know, not a really friendly facade. And there were these like fake windows that were just like, that were just like marbled in. They, there were never windows there. It's not like they were bricked in. So, uh, so they said they wanted something on the facade. So I had this idea of sort of creating a sort of domestic uh, light to come from the space. So it almost looks like someone lives there. So it would be more friendly, like a, a lived in space rather than this sort of intimidating neoclassical institutional space. So I had this idea of making these yellow light boxes, but I wanted the light boxes themselves to be sort of, of complex. So it's, um, it, they're based on RGB, so it's actually red and green. So when you get up close to them, you see these stripes of red and green and a little bit of blue. And then, of course, when you get back, it, they, they're yellow. And to, to make yellow with, with that sort of low resolution of red and green is kind of difficult. So it was a very sort of bright yellow. And I was worried that they, because I said, oh, it's going to look so nice in yellow. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, and I, and it's going to feel so domestic. And then we installed it. I mean, it looks like there's like a nuclear reactor in there. And, <laughs> and but they're like happy with it. So it's not, it wasn't really the, it's not really like domestic, but it is, you know, warm. It's definitely warm. <laughs> and it is this, of course, play between this idea of what we see close up and, and how color is created. I mean, I, I just, I mean, it's amazing that that's how you see yellow. Here's a, um, a, a image from a piece that I just did in, uh, in Marfa that I worked on with Melissa, which was really fun, which is called Ulysses. And it's, basically a series of colors, of Pantone colors, where I, I just walked through Brooklyn one whole day and into Manhattan and then back to Brooklyn and then just recorded the, all the colors I saw in order. And then they were just laid out in the space in chapters of, of different things. So it's a little hard to see. It ended with dreams, the three dreams, the three colors from dream at the end. Here's a, a piece that's up now that's um, at the Morgan Library and it's based on the, on the Book of Hours. And this isn't, um, well, it's not so much about science. It's, it, I mean, it's more about time. And it's, uh, the Books of Hours are these medieval um, prayer books, basically, that were used to organize time. And so I used that as, and the Morgan has several beautiful versions of it. And so I used that as sort of a starting point for making a work in the um, Renzo Piano Atrium that, uh, deals with uh, changing light and, um, and colors in different seasons. So the colors are taken from the Books of Hours and uh, organized on the four uh, walls according to season. There's 365 of them. And the title is a Emily Dickinson from an Emily Dickinson poem, A Certain Slant of Light. And um, then I'm going to end just with something that, oops, oh. No, we don't actually have the last, I'm missing an image here. That guy was dropping in at the last minute. I can see it on my little thing, but you can't see it. Anyway, it's a pr new project for a space. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a fun thing. It's something I've never worked on before. Um, it's for the um, Steinway showroom in Manhattan and um, the piano people. And it's a, uh, a space that's being designed by um, Annabelle Seldorf. And it's like, uh, really a fun thing because I'm really thinking about how uh, 
color and uh, music relate. So this is a sort of Kandinsky. This is one of Kandinsky's um, diagrams, which are fantastic and, of course, ridiculous. And um, it's just something that, I mean, like a project like this, you sort of, you know, it's fun to sort of think about these new things when they come along. And so this is kind of what I was thinking about on the train down. It's like how to do something in this, uh, in this sort of semi-public space that makes these connections between music and visual art. And there, of course, is a Kandinsky painting. Here's the system. And so I was thinking a lot about Newton's system. And the reason that he had, um, if you look at his system here, where he uh, relates the, um, the colors of the visible spectrum, of course, he was the person who discovered that white light is made up of constituent colors of the different wavelengths. And he included indigo because he wanted the visible spectrum to relate to the notes of the musical scale, of which there are seven. So he felt that there should be, be this sort of connection between them and that it would sort of explain everything, this sort of, this sort of theory of, 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 of everything. Everything. Um, and so I love that. And so, I mean, indigo should not be there. I mean, you know, it go, really basically go, goes from blue to violet. But, um, but that is why it's there to sort of make this connection between music and, um, and, and, and color vision. And um, so, anyway, the reason I ended with this is because it's what I'm thinking about at the moment. And, you know, it's always the next thing is the, um, is, uh, is what's most fun, you know, what's coming up next. So that's it. I'm happy. Sorry I ran over. I'm happy to answer any questions. Yeah. Science versus technology? No, like, as, like, what led you towards the art side, let's say, like, Oh, well, I really wasn't so good at science. Um, well, probably, no, two things. It's probably, you know, the sort of answer that, you know, I, I mean, science was really hard. And actually, recurring, uh, you know, people have recurring uh, nightmares. And one of my, and the classic one, of course, is being in, uh, you know, you're at the end of a uh, semester and you haven't done any of the homework and you have to go to the exam. And for me, it was calculus. It's always calculus. And, um, and I think also um, uh, my father was a scientist, so there's a sort of Freudian reason for it. It take longer, to take at least, you know, a 50-minute session to get through. Hi. Um, I really enjoyed your presentation. Thank you for that. Um, my You're question. <laughs> um, my question is, when you talked about poking yourself in the eye, you said that um, you know, or talked about the butterflies, the colors in the periphery and shape is only in the forefront or something. And I was curious, like, what brings, what keeps bringing you back to color and perception and not shape and perception, mm. like. I know that sometimes your your work is about molecular structures. Like, uh -huh. what what brings you back to color more than molecular structure? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's just something I um, 
I mean, we, I mean, there is also this sort of paradox with the poke in the eye. I like this, the idea of a paradox of the paradox of it not being a vis visual stimulus, so it's not sort of going through the optic nerve. Or I mean, I guess probably it is. I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not a neuroscientist. <laughs> uh, uh, um, but uh, so um, I, I like that idea of it being sort of pressure. So it is sort of synesthetic in a way that you, you're seeing pressure in a way, which is. But I think color. I mean, it's just so, something that I find so interesting. And that you know, I mean, I think uh, I can think of two sort of descriptions. There's a famous Cezanne quote where he says, "Color is where the brain and the universe meets." Um, which is, I think, you know, a sort of beautiful, you know, it's, there's something sort of infinite and wonderful about it. And I remember reading uh, uh, an interview with Jessica Stockholder years ago where she said, um, color sends me. You know, she just loves color. I, I, I'm kind of like that. I, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm like a great colorist, you know, like someone, say, like Mary Heilman, who's, you know, I think a great colorist, but I, I'm interested in it and I'm, and I work at it, and I and I and I love looking at it. And you know, I've just always loved looking at it. Hi. Um, in some of your earlier work, you talked about that some of your inspiration was the um, kind of your almost like dis your disdain for uh, photography as fact and uh, trying to move away from that. But then in some of your later work, you kind of used photography to document the silver and document the change in uh -huh. the uh, window. So how has your view on that medium changed over time? <laughs> yeah, there's a great line from Emerson, you know, consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. So uh, one of the great things about being an artist is that you can change and you can, don't have to be so consistent. I'm also less of, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I would never be a, a sort of straight photographer, I don't think, but I, I, I'm interested in it and I'm interested in the instrument and how it can, how it can serve my, my sort of uh, interests. And, but I, I think whenever I use photography, I always want the process to, um, to, to sort of contain uh, doubts of its own veracity, kind of. Um, so, which I think uh, much great art does, where it sort of is, has sort of seeds of its own uh, doubt. Um, and that when that's sort of present, which it can be in photography, um, then, then I'm, I'm interested in it. And I think there, there are photographers who, who do that. And the photographers, I mean, there's a number of really interesting people working f with photography who, who deal with that in, you know, in a really interesting way. So, um, yeah, and I've, I've becoming more open-minded in my old age. In some cases, yes, like that B purple guy, you know, I mean, he's fantastic. So, you know, I really try, I just, um, I had a friend in Berlin, you know, I was worried about like sending an email to people. Um, I mean, I, I and, and so I got, I had a friend in Berlin contact him and then he was happy to help. And some scientists are really interested in helping artists. Some scientists are not. Um, and so, 
it really depends. And, and also, I mean, what I do is not science, obviously. Um, and, um, it's, uh, and so it's informed by science. And I think there's a rigor uh, to the work and this sort of system that I have, this sort of way of working, which I think has to do with my training because my teachers were sort of uh, minimalist. So there's a sort of truth to materials. And, um, and so if I need to sort of figure something out, um, I do go to people sometimes, but often what I can do as an artist is have this sort of inflection, which is not, you know, which a scientist is not really going to help me with. You know, it's like taking the, taking Nabokov and Heisenberg and sort of mashing them together somehow and figuring, you know, that's not something a scientist could help me with. So, um, so sometimes when I really can't understand something, and my brother is also a scientist, and my dad, I would ask him about things also. So, you know, and if I need to do calculations, like sometimes for these molecular pieces, I don't totally trust my abilities because I uh, didn't um, do so well in high school science. Uh, and uh, so I need help with the calculations, and I want that to be accurate. So, for example, if there's a, a sculpture of molecules, I want that to be, you know, accurate. It's not like, a, you know, an approximation. And the same thing with sort of matching uh, the color of a place, like shifting Paris, Texas. That has to be, you know, it has to be Paris. It can't just sort of feel kind of like Paris. So, so there's that sort of precision. And so if I need help to get that precision, um, then I'll also ask people for help. I mean, also it's fun to meet people who are in totally different fields. And that's, and that's a, a huge pleasure and a source of a lot of good ideas. Uh huh. So there are experiences in black and One of my gallerists is actually colorblind, which is kind of hilarious because he's like hawking my wares all over the world and he can't see them. <laughs> Hi. You um, flirted with data and that thing with the uh, uh, jet streams. Uh huh. Uh, obviously, data is a huge, huge thing going on. Do you anticipate uh, working in that again in any way, data? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it interesting. You know, there's a lot of work that's, that, is, that does that, this sort of visualization of data. And um, what? Oh, well, thank you. You know, that's that guy, Edward Tufte. You know, that's his whole big thing. And um, uh, it's... Um, the, 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 uh, which I, and I find his books really interesting, and I find that stuff really interesting. I find the sort of art that uh, he does less interesting. And I think that it's, um, so I'm afraid of, I, it, it scares me a little bit, because I think it's, there's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a danger zone. So I sort of, as you say, flirt with it, and then sort of back off a little bit. Because if, you know, if it, it becomes, what? It scares Yeah. <laughs> Um, hi, thanks for coming to DC. Um, so much of your work beyond being involved with color or science is to me, and not just me, is obviously inspired by text. Uh -huh. um, did you like want to write, or was that ever something you thought about? Yeah, I actually, I, um, I studied uh, comparative literature in college. I wasn't an art major, so I studied comp lit. And, um, 
And then when I was first in New York, I worked uh, in publishing. So I, that was how, that was my day job until, um, well, the last freelance, it was 10 years ago it was, uh, that I was, so I was doing that for 15 years in, in New York. And, uh, Do you still so, write? What? Do you still write? Yeah, occasionally. I've, so I, I, it's, it's a struggle now. Like, I have to write things sometimes, but, and, and I, I, I'm not interested in, like, writing about art so much. I had um, several teachers when I was in grad school who were uh, artists and also critics and writing about art, and it made me, I think it's hard to do both well. I mean, you know, some people did it, like Don Judd did it, you know, in a sort of, and it, but he did it more as, you know, like cranky, uh, you know, cr which, which I could probably do. <laughs> so, I, but, as, but to be like the kind of writer I would want to be, it would be like a poet, which I can't do. I mean, I tried that in school and I could, you know, you have to, you have to sort of cut your losses. Right, well, I also studied comparative literature as an undergrad, and to me, so much of it was about like seeing one set of information or one story through the lens of another story. And I mean, to me, your work really embodies that in a way hmm. that I had never, I don't know, even, I, I never thought that our work could really like talk about comparative literature theory in that way. Well, I think also this sort of, you know, on a formal level, I think what I, I thought, what makes, say, a successful poem where there's a, there's a, um, what Auden would say, the, a sort of necessary relationship between what it is and what it says, which is a sort of, you know, a, a form content relationship where there's a sort of necessary relationship. And that's something I think I learned in my study of, of literature and poetry in particular. And it's a sort of standard that I use to apply to art. And I feel that, that the art that I really like has that sort of necessary connection. And it took me a long time to sort of figure that out. But, but that is something I think is, uh, is uh, connected to the two to the two fields. Um, thanks for coming. You spoke about the evolution of your relationship with uh, Monet and the fact that you're a fan of Warhol. Uh -huh. Is your art corresponding with any other artist? I mean, I think of, for example, with respect to your love for color uh, and and science. I think of Seurat, for example, who uh -huh. seemed to be a pioneer in that field. I'm wondering if your art, if he was an inspiration at all, if there's any other artists who you're corresponding with? Um, yeah, uh, I mean, Surat, oddly, I, I really like the drawings. I'm not so crazy about the paintings. They, they feel ultimately gimmicky to me. Um, and, you know, it's, I, maybe it's like too many art history classes include Surat. You know, he's sort of like art history to death. As a, as a painter, but I think the drawings, I mean, I actually just saw one recently, and they're really, uh, they're really shockingly uh, beautiful. Um, and you can look at, I mean, there's all, I mean, I look at all kinds of things, and I think, um, uh, I mean, I think it's sort of, I mean, I mean, there's obvious, you know, huge influences, you know, people like Smithson and, and, and Bruce Nauman, who are hugely Im important, who I admire a lot. I mean. Uh, Warhol, I, I, I think, is great. And, and, and then, you know, like really, you know, old stuff, which I, I, I love looking at. I've been looking a lot at um, Rembrandt etchings and how, like, how to create light and shadow with just overlapping lines, these sort of scratching lines, and how, how that can be done in a, in a way that's, uh, you know, just sort of amazing. And that sort of is connected to Seurat, which is what he does with those, uh, with the pastel, you know, uh, drawings that sort of, the light and shadow is really sort of in incredible with those. But I mean, I love, I, you know, I love looking at things, and I feel like I don't. It's, um, 
one of my New Year's resolutions again this year is to, you know, to, to look more because it's easy to get sort of trapped in the studio and not, not go out and see things. And just like seeing the collection here, I mean, there's so many fantastic, I mean, you know, like great things, you know, like a great Joan Mitchell painting. I mean, that's like, like so, so fun, so fun to see. I mean, there's all, all kinds of uh, really interesting things. So. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs>